Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold from the Cato Institute. Uh, just to, there aren't a whole lot of empty seats, but you might want to keep in mind as you're selecting a seat that there will be a PowerPoint presentation. So if you can't see the, uh, the screen there, you may want to move over to this side of the room. Um, before we get started with the program today, I just wanted to make a couple quick notes. Uh, first of all, I wanted to uh, shamelessly plug the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. This is a publication that we uh, produce every four years. It gives you a, a really good guide on pretty much every issue deal with here on Capitol Hill, ranging from today's subject, uh, health care, to, uh, to entitlements at large, to uh, Social Security, uh, taxes, trade, foreign policy, civil liberties, you name it, it's in the handbook. Uh, it's a great resource to keep on your desk and uh, flip through as you're uh, familiarizing yourself with new issues. If you don't have a copy of this or you don't have enough in your office, just let me know or another Cato staffer know and we'll be happy to get you one. Um, today's the first day, as, as you probably know, of Healthcare University. This is a program that we've done a couple times in the past, um, but we thought, of course, with uh, the uh, the importance of healthcare and, and, and domestic policy today is very important to do another iteration of this program. Um, everybody should have picked up a, a binder, Healthcare University, out on the registration table. Um, just so you know, hopefully you guys are, are going to be coming to several of these uh, these sessions the next uh, over the next few days. Uh, the binder is the same, so you don't need to pick up a binder every day if you have one. Uh, you've got all the materials that you need there. Um, just a quick rundown for those of you who may have only signed up for this session. We are going to have a program every day in the same room at noon uh, for the remainder of the week. Today we're going to be talking about uh, why we should not have a public plan. Uh, tomorrow we'll be talking about why we shouldn't have mandates. On Thursday we will talk about uh, price controls. And uh, finally on Friday we'll give a, a kind of summary of some free market health care reforms that we should be uh, looking at passing here on Capitol Hill. So we hope you join us for um, all of those sessions. Our speaker today, and actually our speaker for all of these sessions, is, uh, is Michael Cannon. He is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, prior to joining Cato, uh, he worked uh, here on Capitol Hill, actually, at the uh, Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he was a domestic policy analyst. Uh, he is the co-author of this book, uh, Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. It is a, an excellent publication. If you haven't read this, I highly recommend it to you. If you need a copy, again, just see me or another Cato staff, and we'll be happy to get you one. With that, I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to Michael Cannon. Thank you, Brandon. And thank you all for coming uh, out here this afternoon. Um, Start the clock running on myself. Typically, when we have a healthcare university, we have uh, uh, we, what we try to do is we try to provide more general information on um, on healthcare, how healthcare markets operate, a libertarian perspective on healthcare, and why we should rely more on markets and individual freedom than on uh, government solutions to healthcare. But because healthcare reform looks like it's going to be such a big issue this year, we decided that we would uh, structure this. Uh, this healthcare university a little differently. As Brandon mentioned, we're going to have uh, four presentations. The first one today is going to be on a public plan. Um, actually, the first three are all about uh, ideas that have been proposed that are sort of a part of the dominant paradigm of reform now that the Democrats are controlling Congress that uh, we consider uh, to be very troublesome. Uh, and so we're going to take a few days to explain each of those uh, uh, 
those proposals and why we think they're troublesome. And then on the fourth day, we're going to uh, talk about, I'm going to talk about some reforms that uh, I think uh, we would be uh, uh, better advised to follow. So the first, uh, the first such reform that we're going to be talking about, that's today's, the topic of today's lecture is going to be uh, a new public plan. This is an idea that has been incorporated in uh, most of the health care reform packages that have been put together by, uh, let's see, several of the presidential candidates in the 2008 race, including uh, Barack Obama, by uh, Senator Max Baucus, who put together a white paper on, uh, on health care reform. You may have heard a lot of folks on the left, like uh, Speaker Pelosi, the Progressive Caucus here in the House, Howard Dean say that if we are going to have health care reform, a new public plan must be part of it. Now, what do they mean by a new public plan? Well, usually what they're talking about is uh, a new government-run health insurance program for people under age 65 that would be available to uh, either select groups of individuals or uh, everyone under age 65 through typically through what is called a health insurance exchange. This would essentially be a new uh, market regulated by the federal government uh, that would enable people to choose from um, among different health plans. So what would some of the consequences of a public plan be? Well, the Lewin Group recently estimated that depending on how it's structured, uh, a, public, a new public plan could displace two-thirds of the private health insurance market. As many as 120 million people could move from private insurance to the public plan. So well over two-thirds of the entire country would get their health coverage from government programs compared to about one-quarter or a little more than one-quarter today. Many people who would end up in a new public plan uh, would do so not, of their, not necessarily of their own choice. Their employers might drop their coverage, as I'll discuss later. Uh, those people may lose their access to their current doctors, may have difficulty finding another doctor. Another consequence of a public plan that some people like and some people fear is that health insurers uh, and health care providers might get paid vastly less. To my mind, that's not really reason enough to oppose a public plan. I think that given the, all the different ways that government subsidizes and protects a lot of health care providers and a lot of insurers, we shouldn't be too concerned about uh, if their incomes go down because they probably get paid too much as it is. But I would argue that the main reason to be concerned about and even to reject a public, the idea of a new public plan is that it would mean costlier and lower quality health care for everyone. So what I'd like to do uh, to explain that conclusion is, is I'd like to uh, proceed by examining the idea of a new public plan through the claims that supporters make. There are two basic claims that supporters are making about a public plan. One is that through competition with private insurance, we're going to improve not just – we're going to improve the market. Uh, the public plan will, uh, will, will compete on a level playing field that will, uh, that will improve the performance of private insurance. And if the public plan wins uh, – uh, beats out private insurance on that level playing field, well, then so be it. Uh, the second claim is that, uh, like Medicare, you know, the, the public plan will do well in that competition because, like Medicare, it outperforms uh, public insurance outperforms private insurance on both cost control and quality. What I'm going to argue is that uh, um, fair competition from a public plan is not just impossible; the very idea is absurd, and that a public plan will be able to extract will uh, will be able to attract, attract consumers not by virtue of its superior performance, but by its ability to exploit unfair advantages that shift and hide. Uh, its costs away from enrollees and enrollee premiums. And second, that uh, rather than uh, doing a better job than private insurance when it comes to cost and quality, 
Public pro programs like Medicare actually do a poor job of containing costs and do more than any other factor to suppress health care quality. So first, let's look at the, this idea that a, a public plan could be crafted in such a way that it would compete on a level playing field with private insurance. Here's a couple of supporters making that claim. Let's think about what, what, what would have to happen in order to have a level playing field between public plans, uh, a public plan and private insurers. To, to create that level playing field with private insurers, you would have to have, first, no taxpayer funding of the plan's startup costs. If you were starting a new health insurance company today, you would need seed capital to fund personnel, facilities, equipment, financial reserves, and so forth, and you would have to raise that capital privately. Now, one public plan supporter, Berkeley scientist, uh, political scientist Jacob Hacker, suggested a new public plan would be built on Medicare's infrastructure. What that essentially means is that its startup costs would come from taxpayers, giving that plan already an unfair advantage over private plans. For the playing field to be level, the public plan would also have to be completely self-financing. Just like private insurers, the, the public plan would have to cover its own bills with its premium revenue and the money it earns on its investments. The public plan would not be permitted to run deficits, nor could it receive any subsidies, any taxpayer subsidies not also available to private plans. Now, if you believe that that's likely, remember what happens when Congress tries to get people enrolled in government health insurance programs to pay for the benefits that they're receiving. Uh, in 1988, angry geezers surrounded uh, House Ways and Means Chairman Dan Rostenkowski's car, shouting and pounding on the hood. Why? Because he wanted them to pay for the additional benefits that Congress was giving them through the Medicare Catastrophic Care Act. Now, speaking of investments, the public plan would have to maintain real reserves just like private insurers. This creates an interesting problem and dynamic because when other government programs take in more money than they're paying out, Congress has a tendency to raid those surpluses to spend the money on bridges to nowhere and federal buildings in West Virginia. To believe that there would or could be a level playing field between public and private plans, you must believe that Congress will resist the temptation to pilfer the public plan's reserves, just as it pilfered the Social Security and Medicare tr trust funds. Also, Congress must not leverage its market power to favor the public plan. That means no using Medicare's payment rates and no requiring uh, providers to participate in the new public plan as a condition of Medicare participation. Of course, that's the primary reason that some advocates want to create a public plan is because they think it would beat private insurers on provider payments. To maintain a level playing field, Congress would also, uh, uh, Congress and federal regulators would have to uh, avoid any regulations that would favor the public plan either deliberately or inadvertently. And there must not be an implicit guarantee, even an implicit guarantee, that Congress would bail out the public plan if it goes belly up. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac benefited for many years from this implicit guarantee that if anything happened to them, Congress would bail them out. As we all know, that implicit guarantee became explicit not too long ago. It's been estimated that they were able to save $2 billion a year on borrowing costs just by, by virtue of that implicit guarantee. So for a public plan to operate on a level playing field, you must believe that no one else will believe that an implicit guarantee exists. And finally, not only would Congress not have to do any of these things when it created a new public plan, no future Congress would have, could do any of these things either. Uh, that, seem, that seems like wishful thinking, uh, considering that supporters of a public plan like health policy researcher Harold Pollack are already planning future efforts to tilt the playing field in favor of the public plan. But suppose a new public plan satisfies all of these conditions. Suppose it never benefited from any special advantages that it has over private plans. Ask yourself, in what sense, then, would it be a public plan? It wouldn't be. 
It would just be another private insurer. If the mafia gave up intimidation and violence, they would no longer be the mafia. They would just be very eccentric and earthy businessmen. The only reason to have the government get involved in the insurance business is so that you can uh, use, so that the government plan can, ex can exploit the government's power to rob Peter in order to subsidize Paul. Now, for a more realistic idea of what this competition would actually look like, a great place to look is Medicare Advantage. In Medicare Advantage, private insurers are competing with the traditional uh, government-run medi uh, Medicare program. The playing field is never level, among other reasons, because the government decides how much the private plans will be paid, and political jostling every year makes sure that those payments are either too high or too low. So Len Nichols and uh, John Burko of the New America Foundation admit that the playing field is not level in <coughs> Medicare advantage, but they claim the problem isn't the concept of public-private competition. The problem is Congress. Congress keeps tinkering with the payment formula, formula, formulas, formulae for private plans, and this is my favorite part, according to uh, Nichols and Burko, Congress is not an inherent part of pri public-private competition. So the ideal of public-private competition survives intact. This whole, all this business of Congress tinkering with, the, with a formula is not an inherent part of it, which is an awful lot of hand-waving, I think, to say that Congress is not an inherent part of this public plan that it created and its competition with the private plans that uh, Congress also regulates. Government would work so well if we could just get rid of this whole representative democracy thing and let philosopher experts run our lives. Moreover, public plan supporters, I submit, do not want a level playing field. If they did, they would be trying to adopt the Nichols-Burtko plan in Medicare Advantage. They would have one agency, maybe OPM, oversee the Medicare market to ensure that all plans are self-financing, self-sustaining. They would have OPM give each Medicare enrollee a voucher, perhaps risk-adjusted, perhaps adjusted for income. And then they would have CMS operate, CMS would operate Medicare separately on a budget, financing the, the program only with the premium revenue it was able to attract. That is what the premium support demonstration program in the Medicare Modernization Act is supposed to do, yet at the same time public plan supporters claim they want a level playing field between government and private insurers. For people under age 65, they're dead set against that level playing field for uh, uh, people over age 65. And if you need more proof that public plan supporters don't want fair competition, remember that President Obama, who proposed a new public plan during his campaign, also proposed eliminating private Medicare plans shortly after his campaign. Not exactly what you'd expect to hear from someone who wants fair and open competition between public and private plans. It's more like what you'd expect to hear from someone who wants to move everyone into a government-run program. And in fact, as President Obama has repeatedly affirmed, that's exactly what he would prefer. Nobody who wants a public plan wants fair competition. They want special advantages for government. Now, I regret to inform you that this slide was going to be a clip from the Seinfeld second spitter episode that shows just how absurd this idea of fair competition from public plans, uh, between public and private plans would be. I uh, must apologize to our, uh, to our staff because I botched that clip, so it's not, you're not going to be able to see it today. So moving on. Public plan supporters uh, will say, okay, so we can't have fair competition. As long as it's close to fair, no matter because we'll still be better off with a public plan with a, a, a public plan somewhere in the market because public plans consistently outperform private insurance. Peter Harbage and Karen Davenport of the Center for American Progress claim that a new public plan would be just as effective as Medicare when it comes to cost control and improving quality. They're right, and that is exactly the problem. 
Supporters claim that a public plan would do a better job of containing health care costs. In fact, government usually imposes greater costs than private insurance, but its great advantage is how it hides, in how it hides those costs. For example, public plan supporters claim that Medicare has contained per-enrollee spending better than private insurers. According to MedPAC, quote, when comparing spending for benefits that private, uh, that private insurance and Medicare have in common, Medicare spending per enrollee grew at a rate of, of about one percentage point per year lower than for private insurance from 1970 through 19, oh, I'm sorry, 2006. Now, even though that comparison cuts off some very explosive years in Medicare growth at, at the beginning of the program, it may be true that spending has grown faster under private insurance than under Medicare. But that comparison not only makes the faulty assumption that healthcare spending is bad, it hides additional costs that are associated with Medicare. For example, compared to Medicare, private insurance is much more flexible and has added more benefits over time than Medicare has. So even if Medicare contains spending growth a little bit better than private insurance, it may be the case that people prefer or value more flexible and expansive health insurance benefits, and they're willing to pay a little more than that. So Medicare's rigidity can therefore impose hidden costs that don't show up in this comparison. Supporters also claim that a public plan will enjoy lower administrative costs than private plans. Much like Medicare has lower administrative costs than private insurance, they claim. Of course, to reach that conclusion, you have to ignore the hidden administrative costs that Medicare imposes, most notably the economic activity that's des destroyed by the taxes required to fund Medicare. Economists call that the excess burden or the deadweight loss of taxation. Now, economists who have examined all of the administrative costs in public versus private plans have concluded that the administrative costs for public insurance are at least four times higher than for private insurance. Yes, Medicare's administrative costs can be made to look quite low, just as the crime rate in Washington, D.C. could be made to look quite low if you don't count all the murders. Yet as low as Medicare's administrative expenditures are, because that's what uh, uh, public Medicare supporters are talking about when they claim to be talking about costs, as low as Medicare's spending on administrative uh, uh, activities is, th those expenditures should probably be higher. According to MedPAC and according to CBO, because Medicare does not spend a lot of money on things like claims review and preventing fraud, Medicare ends up losing a lot more money to uh, improper payments and fraud than it would otherwise. Essentially, spending another dollar on claims review would probably yield maybe $2 or more, or at least more than $1 of savings. And if, so if Medicare is so good at containing costs, why doesn't it make that investment? I think that Medicare's low administrative spending is a vice, and yet public plan supporters hail it as a virtue. Supporters also claim that a public plan would offer lower premiums than private insurance, sometimes as much as 30% lower. The main way that it would do so, that it could offer those lower premiums, and the main reason that supporters want a new public plan to compete with private plans, I think, is that with that large a market share, the government can demand that uh, providers accept lower payments, whether by adopting Medicare's payment rates, which are typically 30 percent uh, lower than insurers' rates, or by demanding that providers accept the new public plans enrollees as a condition of participating in Medicare. Len Nichols of uh, the new uh, the New America Foundation calls this the cram-down approach to negotiating lower payments. But those lower payments and lower premiums have hidden costs, too. The less a public plan pays providers, uh, fewer providers will participate. According to the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, 30% of Medicare enrollees seeking a new primary care physician have difficulty finding one because uh, of, uh, of Medicare's payment rates. 
And in the Medicaid program, the situation is even worse. 30% of all physicians are taking no new Medicaid patients, Medicaid's payment rates being much lower than Medicare's. So the premiums may be lower, but enrollees will be bearing other costs that, make the actual, that could make the actual cost of a new public program higher. And this cram-down approach also imposes hidden costs on providers. Economist Mark Pauly explains that the government's market power can enable it to be incredibly inefficient but cover up those costs, those inefficiencies, by extracting wealth from providers. And the Lewin Group uh, gives us an estimate of how large those hidden wealth transfers could be. They, uh, it estimates that a public plan could reduce incomes, sorry, could reduce incomes for hospitals and physicians by about $70 billion per year. So when public plan supporters make these claims where they conceal uh, or that that conceal a public program's hidden costs, they're implicitly admitting that they want a new public plan because it's able to do those things, uh, hide its true costs, and exploit unfair advantages over private insurance. Overall, I think it's just difficult to argue that a, that a government plan would, uh, or the government generally does a good job of containing uh, health care costs, especially when existing public plans are the driving reason why government is set to double as a share of GDP over the remainder of this century, and why income tax rates would nearly have to double by mid-century just to keep up. Government health plans also tolerate enormous amounts of waste. This graph comes from Dartmouth Medical School, the Dartmouth Atlas, and it's uh, the one that you'll see uh, OMB Director Peter Orzag use when talking about health care. What it illustrates is that some areas of the country uh, do a lot more, or providers in some areas of the country do a lot more stuff to patients than in other areas, despite no discernible difference in health outcomes. So, for example, it costs twice as much to die at UCLA Medical Center as at the Mayo Clinic. Why? Because the doctors at UCLA Medical Center just do more stuff, uh, do more stuff to you. Um, it's not because patients at UCLA want to spend more days in the hospital or, have, uh, or want to have more physician visits. It's just how UCLA practices medicine, yet the ultimate outcome is the same. This is spending in the last six months of life. So the Dartmouth folks estimate that one-third of Medicare spending does nothing to make beneficiaries healthier or happier. That's about $150 billion per year, roughly the economic output of South Carolina. <coughs> yet Medicare pays no mind to whether any of that stuff is actually worth your tax dollars. Uh, Uwe Reinhardt, a professor of economics uh, at Princeton University, put it well, I think, when he said that Congress has absolutely no interest in reducing dubious medical expenditures. He thought it worth repeating, in fact, and uh, uh, claims that uh, he doesn't understand why that is. So, so that's the story on cost. What about quality? Does Medicare offer any reason to think that quality would be better under a new public plan? Well, according to Stephen Ash and his colleagues, if you're in Medicare, you're no more likely to get quality evidence-based medicine than if you've got private insurance. Quality appears to be mediocre all over. Medicare is no different. A new public plan would be no different either. Does Medicare offer any reason to believe that a new public plan would be cost-effective or even an effective way of making Americans healthier? Well, according to Amy Finkelstein and Robin McKnight, in its first 10 years, Medicare had absolutely no impact on elderly mortality. The financial protection that Medicare provided and other health benefits in the first or subsequent decades might justify Medicare's costs, but that's all speculative. So on cost and improving health, the data on Medicare are unimpressive. But I would argue that the picture is even worse than that, or Medicare's record is even worse than that. Medicare is, in fact, the number one factor dragging down the quality of medical care in the United States. And to pull 130 million Americans, nearly half of the U.S. population, into a similar government program would make our quality problems immeasurably worse. 
What are the main quality problems we face? If you've followed healthcare at all, you've heard about these uh, medical errors that, uh, including misdiagnoses that kill maybe 100,000 patients per year. That's five times as many as die from a lack of health insurance. We don't have enough primary care physicians. We don't coordinate care, and we end up, uh, or we lack basic conveniences like electronic medical records. So we end up doing too little to keep patients out of the hospital. Plus, we lack crucial comparative effectiveness information about what treatments work best. Medicare, I submit, is at the root of every one of these problems. To understand why, you have to understand how a market, how markets promote quality health care. Essentially, they do it, uh, how they, they, they promote coordinated care, electronic medical records, comparative effectiveness research, error reduction, by allowing competition between different payment systems. For example, Kaiser Permanente already uses electronic medical records, has for years. They didn't need a stimulus bill to get them to do it. Why? The reason is that Kaiser uses a payment system known as prepayment, where any money that Kaiser saves using electronic medical records, Kaiser gets to keep. By the same token, Kaiser can actually make money by investing in primary care, coordinating care, and conducting a comparative effectiveness research. As a result, they're already doing all of these things. But the largest purchaser of medical care in the U.S. and in the world is Medicare, and Medicare doesn't pay that way. Medicare pays a separate fee for every service that physicians provide and every hospital admission. Medicare, therefore, pays more when there's duplication, more when there's uncoordinated care, and it even pays more when there are medical errors because those problems lead to additional hospitalizations and additional physician services. If providers invest... Spread over that one. If providers invest, that was a quote from the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission basically talking about how, yes, Medicare is blind to quality and its payment system even rewards uh, medical errors. So if providers invest in electronic medical records to avoid duplicative testing or to coordinate care or to avoid medical errors like medication overdoses, then not only are they out the cost of those efforts, but because they've avoided duplication, they've avoided the additional services associated with medical errors, their payments from Medicare go down too. So they get a double whammy if they try to improve quality. And because Medicare is the biggest purchaser, doctors and hospitals organize their practices around the incentives it creates. Providers don't invest in error reduction. They don't invest uh, or because Medicare will penalize them. They don't invest in care coordination because Medicare will penalize them. We've been waiting for electronic medical records uh, decades after, or we're still waiting for them, decades after banks adopted electronic financial records because Medicare still uh, penalizes providers who try to offer them. So if you want to know why we have so many quality problems, Medicare is the reason. Medicare rewards low-quality care and punishes higher-quality care with lower payments. Even if Medicare changed its payment system, the problem isn't the particular payment system that Medicare uses. Even if Medicare changed its payment system, we'd, have, we'd still be in the same boat. Any payment system... Uh, creates perverse incentives. And if, so if Medicare changed its payment system, we would just trade our current problems for another payment system's quality problems, which is why we need competition between different payment systems to temper the excesses of each. So that if Kaiser Permanente is, giving, is skimping on care, which is the perverse incentive that its payment system creates, there are fee-for-service insurers that exist on a level playing field that can lure patients away from Kaiser. Uh, and that tempers, that tempers Kaiser's... Um, uh, uh, the rate at which Kaiser succumbs to those perverse incentives, and the competition from Kaiser encourages fee-for-service providers to offer electronic medical records or else they're going to lose patients too. A free market would have that level playing field between different payment systems uh, 
but Medicare, by tilting the playing field toward fee-for-service, uh, has, has, has essentially uh, eliminated any such competition. And what happens when we try to in inject that sort of competition into programs like Medicare? Supporters of a single-payer plan try to kick those plans out. So Medicare, I would argue, is not the solution to our quality problems. Medicare is the problem. Nevertheless, you'll hear people like Jacob Hacker saying that uh, the Medicare program is a real success story. When people say that, or when they say, as Peter Harbert and Karen Devonport have, that <coughs> Medicare is leading the market in improving quality by refusing to pay for obvious medical errors <coughs> called never events. These are when uh, provider, uh, providers perform surgery on the wrong patient or the wrong body part. When they say that because Medicare is taking these steps and, and that private insurers are following Medicare's lead, they are turning reality on its head. And never events are a perfect example. In October 2008, Medicare took its first step toward trying to eliminate that perverse incentive where it rewards providers for certain medical errors with more payments for the additional services that are required. Its first step toward trying to make providers bear the cost, the financial cost of those additional services, the, uh, the financial cost of their own mistakes. But the market developed a strategy for discouraging never events and all types of medical errors four decades before Congress created Medicare. The first health plan in the United States that forced providers to bear those financial costs was the Ross Luce Clinic created in Los, uh, Los Angeles in 1929. The first plan you've ever heard of is probably Kaiser Permanente created in the 1940s. Medicare isn't even a leader among fee-for-service plans because Medicare only adopted its policy after the private insurer health partners showed Medicare how it would be done. It took Medicare four, four decades to notice that it was fueling America's epidemic of medical errors, and even then it took only the tiniest of baby steps to fix the problem. Now, to apologize here, I usually don't quote myself in my own PowerPoint presentations, but this is an, from an op-ed that Alan Enthoven and I co-authored where we agreed that, if anything, government prevents markets from improving patient safety. Medicare is not an engine of quality improvement. It is an anchor, and if a new government plan enables the government to dominate even more of the market, the quality of care will become immeasurably worse. And the stakes here are incredibly high. Surgeon and scholar Atul Gawand writes that nothing holds greater promise for improving health and saving lives than making a science of performance, than practicing medicine better. Improving performance, he writes, can arguably save more lives in the next decade than bench science, more lives than research on the genome, stem cell therapy, cancer vaccines, and all the laboratory work we hear about in the news. What he's talking about is implementing our existing know-how, not just, just, just by implementing uh, what we already know better, we can save more lives than uh, uh, through all of that, all of those other scientific efforts. And yet, yet, Medicare has spent four decades and billions of dollars penalizing doctors and hospitals who try to develop the basic tools necessary to uh, improve performance. It's impossible to know how many have died because Medicare has uh, spent these past four decades penalizing quality care, but we can be sure that the number is greater than zero. And yet, people say that Medicare is a success story. But when you hear people say that the problem is fee-for-service medicine, that we need more comparative effectiveness research, that we have a primary care crisis, that we have a fragmented delivery system, that care is dangerously uncoordinated, we need to focus on prevention, and that we have an epidemic of medical errors, they are not criticizing the market. 
They are not criticizing private health insurance. They are criticizing Medicare, and they are criticizing a new public plan and the rigidity that it would spread throughout our health care sector. I count it a good sign that public plan supporters are using the language of markets and choice and competition to advocate for what is essentially socialized medicine. Not only is it, I think, the sincerest form of flattery, it's also the compliment that vice plays to virtue. Uh, so in sum, I think not only would it be impossible for a new public plan to compete on a level playing field, supporters of a new public plan do not want a level playing field, as evidenced by their proposals and their approach toward private plans that already compete in Medicare. A new government-run health insurance program for people under age 65 could more than double the share of the population who depend on government for their health care. Depending on the specifics, it would move, um, uh, move us from about a quarter of the pop population dependent on government for health care to uh, more than two-thirds. The tax burden under the weight of existing programs is already set to double. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the income tax rates are already set to double uh, under the burden of existing government health programs and would rise even faster if we uh, impose even more burdens on the taxpayer. And finally, there's, it seems to me there's nothing more uh, dangerous that Congress could do uh, in terms of suppressing the quality of health care in the United States than subjecting even more of the market to the rigidity that Medicare creates. I think that makes a new public plan probably the most uh, dangerous and harmful health care proposal that's ever been before Congress in a long time, more radical than even the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, and that if we have uh, a public, uh, if there's a reform package moving through Congress that includes a public plan, I think that those, uh, uh, that public plan makes that reform package irredeemable and it should be rejected. So thank you very much, and I'd be happy to take any questions that you've got.